We'll open up to Exodus chapter 20. We're going through the Ten Commandments. Moses spoke for God much of the law that came from him to the Israelites, but the Ten Commandments God spoke himself. He, he boomed with his own voice through the fire, through the cloud, with an earthquake, backgrounded by trumpets from heaven, and he spoke on Mount Sinai to his people. These, these what in the original language is just called the Ten Words. Uh, uh, we call it in our nomenclature the Ten Commandments. They are, they are ever-binding, ever-wise, and ever-good for us to study and to conform our lives to. For to conform our lives to the Ten Commandments is to conform our lives to God's gracious revelation in Jesus Christ. None of this, we're in Jesus, no more law. None of this, we don't need the law and God's commandments because we have grace. God's grace saves us from the law, then sends us back to the law to learn how to live in godly ways. This is what God said in Exodus chapter 20. We'll read the first seven commandments as we land on, chapter, on number seven, which is our topic of study today. God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner that is within your gates for... In six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, powerful, authoritative law in our midst this morning. We have to see through these laws. Every week we've been taking the discipline of asking, how does this law reveal something about the God who speaks it? Every law that God has given tells us something about him, about his nature, about his attributes, about his person and what he values. And today we see in his commandment, do not commit adultery, we see that he is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Now, this, is, this is foundational to our understanding about God's saving work all throughout the scriptures, all throughout history is this. It's so foundational to our understanding of God and how he works in the world is that he makes and then fulfills covenants. In fact, the whole of the book of Exodus is the response to a previously made covenant. We see in Exodus chapter 2, and then he repeats it in Exodus chapter 6. He says, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant with Abraham. The whole reason there was an Exodus, 
The whole reason this book exists, the whole reason they were saved under the blood of the Lamb, through the water of the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and then given God's law and commandments, and then sent into the nation of Canaan, the whole reason that exists is because many hundred years ago, God met with Abraham and made him promises, made an oath in the blood of animals, and made thereby a covenant with Abraham that he, as long as he be God, can not break. He could not break covenant. God is unable to break covenant. We see it come up again in Exodus 19 verse 5, which is just a, just a few minutes before the reading of the Ten Commandments. We see in Exodus uh, 19.5, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the nations. So, so this is how God views his relationship with Israel. His laws given to Israel is all in the context of covenant. I will do this, I promise you. And if you do this, I promise you, I will do these things for you or do these judgments against you. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He made a covenant with Adam, which was broken in the garden and resulted in the curse. He made a covenant with Noah, whereby he saved him and promised that never again would he flood the earth, though we deserve it, no less than Noah's generation. He made a covenant with Abraham, which gave birth to the whole Israelite nation. He made a covenant now with Moses and to Israel, which was stipulated by many more laws and would condition how they were to live as a nation in the land. And he would make a covenant with David, so as to, to, to establish an eternal kingdom, which would become the spiritual and eventually glorified, consummated kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, he established and made the long-prophesied new covenant. The gospel is, in covenantal terms, the new and better covenant that God has made. It is a set of divine promises made by a divine oath and sealed by divine blood. The gospel is a covenant. And so we are thankful to God for Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. We see God's covenant-making and covenant-keeping nature in Hebrews 7 as well. It says this, This all then makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If you're familiar at all with the scriptures, you should know, you must know, and I pray that you know, that the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a much, much, much better covenant than any other covenant that came beforehand. Because every other covenant required obedience for the blessing. Every other covenant had, had a limit on what it could give you back. Even if you were the perfect Israelite, you would not earn for yourself eternal life and forgiveness of sins. But the covenant of Jesus Christ promises that. It gives an unending, bottomless well, unending riches of blessings to all those who merely have faith in Jesus. This is the better covenant that we as Christians gather, not under the, the judging mountain of Sinai, but the, but the gathered mountain of Zion, where Calvary stands in our midst, where we look not to the, the fearful cloud, but to the cross of Jesus Christ. And we know our sins are forgiven. We know that Jesus is a better covenant mediator than Moses. He gives to us better promises. And this is our assurance this morning. Because God doesn't change, because God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, the gospel will never wear out. 
God's grace in Jesus Christ can never expire because God cannot break covenant. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. But as that comes into our anthropological understanding, in other words, our understanding of God then imprints through his word onto how he created mankind. It comes into this, this notion of marriage. And this, this commandment today tells us, screams at us, God is a marriage-positive God. God loves that. We, we looked in the fifth commandment on honoring authority and honoring family authority, that God is a family-oriented God. He's, he's a family man, if we can put it into human kind of language. He loves the family. He invented the family. He designed the family. He blesses the family. And, and, and an abundance of, of God's ordinary ways of blessing the human race comes to society in as much as we value and protect the nuclear family. The more polygamy, the more adultery, the more that childlessness, all that child abuse, all that violence and divorce, the more that those things happen, the more society sees itself weaken. Because society can be defined as this, just a whole bunch of families. Therefore, where families are weak, we said, society will be weak. The church is God's family of families. Therefore, where the, the families are weak, where, where family heads, husbands, are spiritual leaders and fathers, where they are weak, the church cannot be strong. You cannot build a strong house with weak bricks, nor can there be a strong church with weak families. <clears throat> but we see also here that while, while family is the, is, the, is, the, is the building block of society, marriage is, is the floor, the walls, and the roof of family. Marriage is that covenant that, like God, we enter into with a promise to be faithful until God expires our life. Marriage is the covenant that we enter into to give a healthy and stable godly bounds and constraints to what we call family. Children raised up under marriage. Love, sex enjoyed in the confines of marriage. God loves marriage and he gives to marriage part of his covenantal spirit. Listen to what God says in Malachi chapter 2. As, as he's rebuking the priests, no less. The, pri the same could be done in our day. Uh, uh, God could appear through a prophet and scream at many of the pastors out there who are sleeping with their worship leaders male or female, who are sleeping with members of the congregation. I'd be, like, I could, I could literally, we, we don't have time if I could just tell you the stories that I've literally heard of second or third hand, let alone a quick Google. The church of God needs to re redeem and reestablish the importance of this commandment. But, but in a, a Malachi's day, it was similar. Malachi the prophet was speaking against the Levites and the priests and saying, God hates your sacrifices, stop offering them. And like an evangelical, they stand up and say, that's offensive, Malachi. That makes us feel bad. We put a lot of funding into our church uh, programs. We don't, we don't appreciate that you say our worship is unacceptable. Why is it unacceptable? And he says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. I said this two weeks ago. I'll say it again. So many men want to talk about their spiritual maturity and when you ask them, how's your marriage, they look like this is a question out of left field. What does that have anything to do with my spiritual maturity? What does that have anything got to do with my character? That's, that's my family. 
that's, my ma- that's, that, that's not me. I, I want to talk about you, me, and God and how much I love Jesus. No. How's the marriage bed? How's the conversation? Does your wife feel loved? Is she cherished? Is she protected? Is she thriving? If not, you're a fake. He says, because while they they want some spiritual, really theological, covenantal, uh, uh, Levitical explanation of why their sacrifices are, is it because their their right cloven hooves are slightly ajar? God will do anything to give good sacrifices. How about you stop sleeping with the young girls that come to temple? How about that? How about you just stay faithful to the wives who you married when when you were younger? How about that? They didn't like that. He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. A lot of people don't realize this. The reason we don't do elopements, the reason you can't just go and do in the old style of what the Puritans used to have to struggle with called being hand fast or something like that. Two young people would be in love, they'd go in secret, marry themselves with some kind of promise in secret and then they can sleep together. And what makes that not marriage is that it doesn't have witnesses seeing the covenant, testifying to the covenant. Marriage is a social thing. It's not just between two people. Our society is wrong. It's not just between two consenting adults. Who knows how long that uh, definition will even last. We'll see how it goes. But it's not just between two consenting adults. It's between two consenting adults and God because this says he was witness there that day. As I do weddings, which is one of just a tremendous part of the job as being a pastor, is bringing souls together for a lifelong union and, and telling them what it's going to be like and helping them uh, think about the day and think about their marriage. And, and what I, I warn them in the premarital meetings that we have and what I warn them there on the day is the vows you're about to make are made in front of witnesses and before God. He will literally ask you on judgment day whether you upheld these promises. I'll probably have to come and stand account as well. Think about it. God was witness that day. Other people are here as witnesses because it is a social covenant. God says this, He was witness between the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God has instilled his covenant nature, his covenant-keeping heart into the very makeup of marriage, and we get to partake in that. It says in verse 15, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. In other words, When you're committing adultery or when you're jumping into new marriages and quickly divorcing your last wife because she aged a couple of years, what you're forgetting is that God is after the legacy and heritage of children. When you divorce quickly, when you sleep around, when you chase the hottest young thing, you think that marriage is all about a good time. It's all about the next experience. And God is saying, I had a purpose in this marriage. When I gave to you a portion of my spirit to bind your hearts together, I did so so that out of this beautiful marriage might come children that know their God. And therefore it is a destructive act against the next generation to commit adultery and break a marriage. But we see this, this word here, this phrase, God made them one with a portion of his spirit in their union. Sometimes we get confused when we say married people consummate the marriage, they make covenant oaths, and then it's completed in the 
act of consummation in the bedroom. That's not the public part. But we do get them to kiss publicly to show kind of as a down payment. I'll meet you later. We'll get it done and we'll seal the deal. It is literally a covenantal act of sealing the deal. But we get a little bit confused when we call that being one flesh. We think the flesh, it's one flesh because they're one body because their body's touched in that way. The idea of one flesh is, is, if we pick up this language of Malachi, is deeper than that. Being of one flesh could otherwise be called a spiritual union. It's not merely physical just because the word there is flesh, but, but to join into flesh, to become one flesh, is to become one person. The Puritans used to say that in marriage you have one heart between two bodies. There is this deep union that comes, and not only between the humans, but also God binds up his own spirit between them, sewing them and stitching them together. The spirit of, his, of him within their union. Therefore, adultery is a, is a, a destruction of, a, of, of what God builds and what we build over, over often many years. Imagine this. The old colonial times, maybe the settlers come and they and they start to build on their on their new block of land, the 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 the, the house and the and the barn and and the corral for the animals and and slowly the husband labors while the the wife looks after the young children and she makes the jams and and she's storing it all on the shelves and he's building cupboards and he's using the hand drill for every hole in every beam in every wall and so the house is slowly being built and then in a in a careless act close to the day of final completion, when, when the last screw in the door is about to be put in, there is the knock of a, a, a careless knock of an oil lamp that then falls over the ground and burns up the entire household that the family has been laboring together to build. It can't be control-alt-deleted at that point. It can't quickly be undone as if it was merely something spilt. Adultery quickly and in a moment, in a consuming act, destroys what has been being built over often many years. And the only way to move forward from there is to recommit, is to reestablish and to rebuild, if that be God's, God's will and the desires of both parties. It is by nature a destructive, what Malachi calls a violent act. God says through Malachi, you are covering your family in violence. Marriage is supposed to be a, a household, a protective shield for the children, for the wife, for the, for, the, for, the, for the father as well, for all of us. And yet adultery covers the family with violence and makes it a suffering place. God is a marriage positive God. Therefore, he commends marriage to us by commending covenant faithfulness to us and through that promises many blessings. We also see in this commandment, do not commit adultery that God is a sex-positive God. I'm going to make sure I don't make any eye contact as I say that to any particular person. God is a sex-positive God. Amen? Amen. Right. So when we hear this, don't commit adultery, we hear, yes, angry grandfather God doesn't enjoy when humans you know, go through puberty and find out what their bodies can do. Oh, no. You, you know, there are theological theories that say that the eating of the fruit in the garden was actually Adam and Eve finding out they could have sex together. That guy is a nerd. <laughs> Whoever came up with that theory, his life sucks, and he's probably not married. And, 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 and shame on him if he is. In, in history, there has been theological convictions that have said that, that uh, sex is like a necessary evil. 
Uh, some of the Catholic church fathers, and they took this from, uh, uh, not church fathers, the church fathers weren't Catholic, thank you very much, but some of the Catholic theologians, they did take this from some of Augustine's writing, took basically, it's lust, it's sinful desire, if you want to sleep with your wife for any reason other than to procreate. If that's not in your heart, then, then it's lust. Oregon, a church father, castrated himself on the conviction that it was better to be pure than married and have these desires. One of the guys who loved him, Eusebius, confirmed. He says, yeah, this is not a rumor. He did it. It was idiotic, though we love him for some of his other areas of leadership. That one, do not imitate. But this has been our our confusion. We hear God limit something, right? Don't drink poison. And we hear, God wants us to die of thirst in the wilderness, apparently. No, no, just don't drink poison. Don't commit adultery. Oh, God's so prudish. He, he hates sex and, and these things that we've invi- invented to enjoy. And, uh, you know, he hates our enjoyment of the physical body. You go, no, 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 he designed that. He designed every nerve. He designed every nerve focal area, all of the anatomy, all of it, his idea. I think he did a pretty good job. I, I, I agree with Adam. Whoa, man. This is, this is a good creation. There was the, the we'll, we'll read Genesis 2. This is God's idea. Genesis 2, God said, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. This was his job as king regent in the land of the earth. It was a, an image of God's heaven. It was his job, like God, to take authority and set dominion over these things and name them. And so he named them all. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Everything came in their pairs, and Adam recognized that he was, he was alone. He agreed with God, it's not good for me to be alone. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her then to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone. Hasn't even met her, doesn't know her personality, doesn't know what her voice sounds like, doesn't know what she likes, but he likes what he sees. This body is good. Bones, good. Structure, amen. Flesh, let's do this. The bones of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She belongs to me, he's saying. She came from me. She belongs to me. I'm going to give myself to her. We are one. I am man. She is woman. Verse 24. Therefore, this is God's commentary through Moses. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That is the leaving of family creating a new family, and they shall become one flesh. God commands the act of consummation in the marriage covenant. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Nudity, the human anatomy, the act of sex as a culmination of marriage to be enjoyed is God's idea. And we say, thank you, God. It is good. This command is not against sex. It is against the abuse of sex. He, he loves sex. He commands sex. He designs sex. He invented sex. He gives it to the marriage uh, partners. But his love, his commanding, his delighting in, and his gift of sex 
is all constrained and limited by the first two things we saw. That he first loves covenant keeping. He second loves marriage. Thirdly, he loves sex. Sex is necessarily to be holy, to be enjoyable, and to be delighted in in God's eyes, to be aligned with his will, has to be in the confines of marriage, of the covenant made to one another. We are, not, we are not at the buffet table taking little bits and things and experiences and pleasures from different people as we walk around one another like our age and our world does so often in the, in the dating uh, scene. We are not doing that. We are rather binding to each other in covenant before there is the giving of the physical love. And then in that constraints of marriage covenant, in order to honor God's marriage, his covenant nature, then... We are, in, we are commanded to enjoy sex. Therefore, to break this law is to sin against the design of sex. It is to sin against the design of marriage and cover family with violence. And it is to sin against God's covenant-keeping nature that we were made to image. So now we come to this command and we say in a, in a practical way, today then, as Christians seeking to, as Jesus said, if we love Jesus, we will obey his commandments. He said, I've not come to tear down the old, but to fulfill it. Give it, give it a full completion and also apply it to your lives with his new teaching. And therefore we ask, how do we obey this? How can we uphold it and how can we honor God in it? First of all, of course, the command is against any act or form of adultery. As we've seen, this is, this is the sleeping with somebody, the engaging in, in some kind of sexual act. Maybe it's not always the exact and full completion of a certain act, but the enjoying, enjoying and the, the partaking in a physical and sexual act. And if you don't know what counts as that, you're probably guilty. As soon as we debate the definitions of terms, that's just red flag, we're guilty. Anything you don't want to tell your spouse, that, that, that is what counts as engaging in a physical act against the covenant. But the sexual act outside of the marriage bounds, and which breaks your marriage covenant to somebody else, if you're a married person sleeping with somebody that you are not married to, it is a breaking of this commandment. In the Old Testament, this would be resultant in death. You would be stoned, you would be taken to the elders, and the town would kill you. In the New Covenant, the command, the, the, the law of God allows divorce, the, the New Covenant equivalent of death. It does not command divorce. It does not demand divorce. Divorce is not always preferable or even the best outcome. However, it is allowable. We, we, we pray and we, we hope and we try and rebuild so that the, the covenant can be reestablished, recommitted to, and then rebuilt going forwards. However, it is not commanded to the victim who has had their covenant uh, 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 broken by the guilty spouse. The covenant is supposed to be until, life, uh, until death. However, it is possible that it be severed. Thomas Watson makes a, makes a list of, of the damages... The, the, the effects or the judgments of God against adultery. He says, first of all, it covers the family with violence. He says, where there is adultery, even before it has come to the surface, God already starts sowing discord and hatred within a family. Some wives know that their husband has done something. They don't know how or they don't even know what's been done, but something is wrong because there is division and there is a lack of intimacy and there is hardness of heart. Secondly, 
It, co it covers the bodies with diseases. Even in the ancient world, they knew this. Proverbs 5, verse 11. The man is commanding his son, do not go towards the adulterous woman. Keep away far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. At the end of your life, you will groan and your flesh and your body will be consumed. Sexually transmitted diseases are not a new thing. Where as long as there has been the, 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 the breaking of marriage covenant in sexual acts, God has, God has judged it in this way. He says the body can be consumed. He, he says also poverty comes scripturally. The commandment, Proverbs 6, that this commandment is to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute may only be the loaf of a bread, but a married woman hunts down your precious life. You think, it's only 50 bucks, it's only one night, I bought a one drink, one meal, one app swipe, and that's all it really cost me, $10 a month subscription on an app. It may seem cheap, it costs you your life. She, she tears down, other parts of the Proverbs will say, tears down the house because now you have sometimes illegitimate children. Now you have two functional families and it's dysfunctional families. Whatever may come, God often sows that poverty in the wake of adultery. He says also shame, Proverbs 6 verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor. Often, guys, I try and teach my sons, other young dudes, it's awesome when you have a good wound. A great scar is awesome. It comes with a story. Going to battle and coming back with scars across the, the body are, is honorable. You give honor to veterans who are, who are missing parts of their bodies for the sake of our freedom. Adultery gets wounds and dishonor. When they see the pain that you're in, they shake their head. They say, you deserve this. You are dishonorable. You have shame. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. He's talking of the reputation of somebody known to do that. that. That disgrace is not quickly wiped away. Or he says it also brings God's judgment eternally. Proverbs 9 says, stolen water is sweet. Speaking of adultery, it's always, it always tastes a little bit better when it's somebody else's. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are within her house. That, the, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Often fornication, and, and in this instance adultery, is just God's trap door to eternal punishment. And, and, that, and that somebody commits that to their own, their own soul's peril. Adultery leads to damnation, Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. It brings God's judgment eternally, as well as all of these temporal ways. But, but as we understand the law, and we've looked at other laws, we understand that when God's Ten Commandments commands one thing, it also commands everything that led up to that one thing. So we can see while it commands against adultery, it also commands those things which lead to adultery. How many people have heard others talk, maybe you've spoken this way, this adulterous way, of having a work wife, having a work husband, 
having a friend and there's nothing sexual. We just catch up for lunch. My husband isn't all that, isn't all that emotional. He's not good at talking. We don't have similar interests. But me and my, me and my friend, we, it's just a movie. It's just lunch. It's just a coffee. It's, we just walk to the, to the bus together. We just, we just catch a train ride in every morning together. You're dating somebody that is not your husband. Man, you are, we, we say it this way, you're mowing somebody else's grass. That's the old Aussie, Aussie way of saying it. You're stepping on somebody else's property, and you may not have broken in yet, but we can tell what you're scoping out. We can tell every time you let her cry on her shoulder, every time she tells you something that, that hey, I, I haven't told my husband this yet, but I feel like I can trust you. You're paving the way to damnation through the door of adultery. Work spouses is a breaking of this commandment. Emotional affairs, any time. Guys get looped into this just because they're looking at the flesh. Usually this area is more of the, 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 the woman's angle. Emotional affairs where there's, there's things that you share with other men that you don't share with a husband. Or there's, there's things that you will tell somebody and you request him not to tell your husband. And all the guys hearing at that point is, three months? Two weeks? At some point, I'm going to get some from her. That's all he's thinking. I don't, I don't care how long you've known each other and loved each other as friends. That's all he's thinking. Men, that's, that's all we'll assume you're thinking if you tolerate this sort of thing. Men should never tolerate secrets from, from another man's wife. Women should never, wives should never give secrets, uh, 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 deeper thoughts, dreams, hopes to men that are not their husbands. That's literally why God gave you this husband. <clears throat> Inappropriate time with others. Uh, uh, as, 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 as I do pre-marriage counseling, as I counsel marriage, I always say you need, you need to speak out openly your, your expected boundaries for each other within your... How much time, uh, uh, you know, do you phone call uh, people of the opposite sex? Do you have each other's passwords on each other's phones? You can check it without, uh, uh, without having to warn them. It, that's not even creepy or weird controlling. That's literally just trust. That's just trust. Uh, uh, do you have open door policies with each other in every area of life? And have you communicated who you do and expect uh, your, your spouse to and to not spend time with or to talk to certain hours of the day after 6 p.m.? No other woman needs to be calling you. Have you had these discussions? You need to have those discussions. Proverbs 6 verse 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? That's the guy that entertains an emotional relationship with a woman that's not his wife. That's the woman that, that entertains the, the trust and loving embrace of a man that's not a husband. You're carrying coals and you expect to get home and put them in the fireplace and have a clean, unperished shirt. It's idiocy. It's folly. It doesn't happen. Or we can say, <clears throat> while adultery is, is uh, prohibited, so also is fornication. We call this the West. We just call this going through puberty, state school, college, the beach, whatever you want to call it. This is like the expected rite of passage. We, we have no rite of passage in really the West to, to tell young men they're men, to affirm in young women that they are now responsible and trusted and, and they just forge their own. And so instead of being called up by the responsible wise men and women around them, they're called outward and downward into what their peers, their idiotic teenage peers, call the rite of passage into manhood. Sleeping with a girl, sleeping with a guy, giving yourself out, putting out 
blogging lots, sexting, all of these things, fornication, any kind of sexual act with those you are not married to. This obviously includes prostitution, friends with benefits, one-night stands, Tinder dates, and the rest. It's not love. People try and tell you that, that God is against your love. He doesn't want you to enjoy love. No, he wants you to enjoy real love. And love doesn't lead each other to God's eternal judgment. Some people who are fornicating and calling it love are completely unaware and ignorant of the fact that they are the instruments of each other's eternal damnation. It's not love. It will lead to heartbreak, but that's not the main thing. It's leading you to hell. And probably most applicable in our sort of a scene and, 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 and area that we're in as, as church on Sunday morning would be those who do genuinely love each other, do want to live a godly life together, and who are dating but who are unself-controlled. And fornication comes in as the, as the temptation, and then that line is, is, is passed, and then, and then you're just not wise about how you're spending time together, and there's more lines passed, and then that becomes the new line, and everything up until that act is, is kind of okay. Fornication or things that lead to fornication. It is. This is how a lot of young Christian, couple, uh, young Christian couples think. They go, I'm not cheating. This has nothing to do with adultery. It's just because my my." My faithful love to him is so strong that I can't control myself. As if they think, this, is, this will all be resolved by marriage because this is just training me for loving him in marriage. This is just training me for loving her in marriage. We just can't control how faithful our hearts are towards each other. Wrong. You're actually training your soul to normalize the breaking of God's law. You're normalizing and setting a pattern for yourself for sleeping with somebody that's not your spouse. And when you get married, your sinful nature goes, well, well, I'm not being satisfied with that in the bedroom anymore because this is within covenant. I like disobeying God. And in my pre, pre-marriage times, this, this sin nature was, was built up pretty strong. It got plenty of work out. And it starts looking for other opportunities. Fornication, even, if, even with your, your Christian, faithful, godly, other than this area, future spouse, is still training for adultery because you are normalizing the, 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 the enjoying of sexual uh, passion outside of marriage covenant. It's defiling the marriage bed. This also applies to... Uh, 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 yeah. This also does apply, uh, pardon me, to, um, to the prohibition or the, the, the undue delay of marriage. When you're 35, my darling, then you can marry. Uh, when, when you've uh, completed your tenure at your first job, my son, and you're 40, then you can date. And parents think that what they're doing is keeping them from sin, and they're not. Uh, it prohibits this commandment, the, the undue delay of marriage, where, where there is un, an otherwise godly and lawful union that is, that is uh, 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 beginning in, in, in loving, godly relationship. The Bible normalizes young marriage. It doesn't command, it's not as if, as if this is the thou shalt, but it normalizes young marriage. In fact, even in Malachi, God said to the, to the Levites, he spoke of their wife of their youth. Youth in, in, in Jewish culture was anywhere between 13 and 21. Now that's, that's the normal age to be getting married. That's not a command, that's not a, that's not a law, don't hear me say that. But I think that where a lot of adult, uh, parents go, go wrong is to think, if they get married young, they might make terrible mistakes. Okay, 
If they don't get married young, they're also going to be making terrible mistakes naked and outside of marriage covenant. Just so that you're aware, that's going to probably happen. But, but, but they should be self-controlled. God gave them marriage literally in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2 and 3. It is good that they be self-controlled, but here's the solution, man and woman relations in marriage to control sexual immorality. And so an undue and every family is different and conversations have to happen with wisdom and respect and not in a way that dishonors the fifth commandment and yet undue delay of marriage either by parents or more frequently it's just by the people who don't even prioritize getting ready for marriage. Welcome to Hope. We want to help you get ready. Guys, move out. Get a job. Work hard. Ask for advice from other men. Speak to gals. Ask her out. Wait at least second or third date before you start talking about how many children she might want to have. Let's, let's just give it some sense of normalcy. But by fourth date, you have my permission to propose. Uh, but, but start talking about that. Just get, get, getting ready, getting out of house, saving up. Uh, uh, I was talking with my wife just the other day. and I, I, I think that we should normalize. I'll just say this so that you can, if you're less extreme, you can feel a little bit normal. We should normalize saving up for marriage when our boys are hitting about 13, 14. I, I mean, if they're going to need, a, need, need a, uh, uh, at least a rental, a wedding, and some other expenses and whatnot, maybe they're 18, 19, getting married real young. Uh, that, that's going to take a few years to save. I don't want to tell him when he's 22, start saving, you know, you meet a gal and then you need to do a three-year preparation to get yourself married. How about we start normalizing to every young man and every young woman, you will probably, nine out of ten, be somebody's wife or husband one day. Let's start talking about that, normalizing that, speaking about it, because in obedience to Hebrews 13, let's everybody hold the marriage bed in honor. This includes the kids. The teenagers, you don't want them to hit 16 and then you have the discussion about fornication and pornography. Have the conversation with, with the boys at, at 9 and 10 and 11, the latest. Talk in, in age-appropriate ways, but we must be the parents who are taking responsibility for our children. Couples, therefore, the question must never be how far is too far before I'm married. That's not how you honor this commandment. The question needs to be how can I most protect and preserve the purity and sexual, uh, 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 spiritual and sexual purity of my, of my fiancé, of my boyfriend, of my girlfriend. How can I most protect that? And that will look different for everybody as we pursue the obedience to this command. I'll say this, it also commands, this prohibition of adultery also positively, implicitly commands a good sex life within marriage. A good a free and a frequent sex life with plenty of variation. Proverbs 5, after commanding against adultery, don't go and drink of that, my young men. Do not go and look for the, for the poisonous system that is broken and ajar in the adulterous woman. He says, go home and drink water from your own system. Flowing water from your own well. That's, that's your wife. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all time with delight. It's in the Bible. 
be intoxicated always in her love. Women, are you, are you a little bit sick of how obsessed he is with how beautiful you are and how many advances he makes? He's obeying the Bible. Be drunken. For, forget where you put things. Be Just stumble over your words a little bit because you are so obsessed with the love of your wife. That's how God geared them. And men are responsible to turn that attention only and ever towards their wife. Verse 20 says, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of the adulteress? Go home, married couples, and read Song of Solomon's together. May the Lord bless you. There should be freedom. There must be an openness of conversation and and a rare no. It should be rare that, that the husband knows his wife so poorly that he's always asking at terrible times, men, know your wife better. Wives, be open and, and, and responsive and appreciate the advances. It should be a rare no when a couple know each other well and are seeking to keep each other satisfied in obedience to 1 Corinthians 7, which says we have a authority over each other's bodies as a gift to one another. It should be a rare no. And in the spirit of Genesis 2, there should be no shame. There should be no shame in, in asking for this, in suggesting that, in, in loving each other in a desirous way. However, it must be said, because there's always some idiot who takes what I said there, forget everything else, goes home and beats his wife with that command. Sex life is always the result of loving, emotional, spiritual, verbal, physical care, protection, and affection. Always. Always. And Jesus drives this commandment hard home. If, there's probably some of us who are thinking, I am really glad I haven't ever done that. I haven't ever committed that. This sounds serious, and I'm just glad I'm outside of the judgment of the seventh commandment. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and tells us what it in fact always meant. And he said, not in a way to, to, to uh, uh, remove the old commandment, but in a way to expose its deeper bite He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I'm telling you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Therefore, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And then where does he go? He goes from the the eye that looks and then the hand that also sins, gentlemen. And if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members that your whole body is thrown into hell. I can't tell you how many gentlemen know that it's their laptop, know that it's their phone, through which pornography and through which lust at other women's social media and through which all of these avenues are coming right through their phone. And I tell them, then get an old Nokia that just takes calls and texts. Oh, I couldn't live with that. Well, could you live without an eye? Do I have your permission to pluck out an eye since that's obviously, according to Jesus' words, more able to be done away with than your phone and Instagram? If it is the gateway to your sin, towards your family's destruction, towards breaking of covenant against your wife, towards paving the way to adultery and then damnation in hell, get rid of it. It might be the the relationship with somebody at work. Whatever it be that is paving the way towards adultery and, as Jesus said, committing the lust to look at and to think of all the opportunities you would do, that lust is adultery of the heart and he commands against it. This, of course, includes, as we've mentioned, 
pornography. Pornography globally is a $100 billion industry. For reference, Australia spends $45 billion on our military a year. More than double our military is getting sexualized videos and often violent videos into the minds of often as young as seven and onwards. That's like the average exposure is between seven and nine these days for young boys that they even, that they even are willing to say. Uh, 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 human slavery and sex trafficking is at an all-time high in all of history. It may be illegal in most nations, but it goes on in all nations because, including ours, because of the funding that comes through pornography. You don't have to pay for it anymore. It's in the secrecy and an anonymity of, a, of, of an incognito tab on a phone. And yet the clicks are measured, the advertisers pay, and it funds the stealing of children, the stealing of people, the, the taking of, 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 of secret videos and whatnot that also leads right into either prostitution or just rape. It is, it, is, it is all the time going on in our world. And if we're clicking on those videos, they have you to thank. You're a customer whether you're paying or not. We are those who in honor of God's, God's design of marriage and this law and the value of human life and society, we step back. We do not feed lust, which destroys and wages war against our body and soul. Every commandment we've asked ourselves, how are we freed from the debt and the punishment due to our sins that were committed under this first covenant? Everybody's born... Uh, the Bible's language is in Adam. You're born a human being, which means you're born on Adam's team, in, in Adam's lineage. And because of his first sin, which we were guilty in, and because of our daily agreement with Adam's sin and our rebellion against God, we continue under this kind of covenant relationship with God, which means every sin deserves punishment. Every righteous, truly righteous act that you do will receive an eternal reward. You just never do any of those. So that doesn't matter. Every sin deserves punishment. This is the covenant relationship through Adam that we relate to God with from our birth. Meaning that every act of lust, every act with the hands, every video we watch, every sexual act we engage in, every marriage we have tempted out of, every, every act of illicit sex that we have thought of, engaged in, watched or hoped for is measured and recorded against our name because under this covenant, every soul that sins shall die. And then God makes a better, to use covenant marriage relationship, he makes a better proposal to human race. Or he makes a better set of promises through a better husband than Adam. He makes to the human race a better covenant with richer promises. This is what Hebrews 9 verse 15 says of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can pay the debt of my sin? 
nothing but the death of Jesus. What can redeem me from my sins against the first covenant and law do not commit adultery? Nothing but the life given out in the sacrifice of Jesus. What can atone for my guilt under the first covenant? Nothing but God becoming man, living as a human, dying the death you should have died in payment for your sin, being resurrected and enthroned and crowned as mediator, representative, husband over a new covenant marriage so that all who are called, the verse says, everybody who hears the calling of God, repent of your sin, give your sin to Jesus. You may have adultery, divorce, horrendous things in your past, give it to Jesus. He can forgive you. He will have you forgiven. He will atone. He loves you. He loves bringing home the wayward and the adulterous, and you will receive the promised eternal inheritance. What can save you? Jesus Christ. What can justify you and make you stand righteous and even confident so that you can walk back to this law and say, God, I failed in the past, but by your spirit, can you help me to live in light of this commandment? Praise be to God. The victory comes through Jesus Christ. Have faith in him and live. Let's pray. God, it is a depressing thing to consider at length our own covenant unfaithfulness. Both against every person that we've ever been in covenant with. If we're unmarried, then our future spouse has, has been dishonored. The, the marriage bed, your design, has been dishonored because of our actions, our lookings, our sexual behavior, our lusts. If we're married, every one of us has sin within the marriage bed, uh, with the computer, with another person to some degree, either emotional or the looking or physical. We have something to confess, and it is a depressing thing, a hopeless, degrading thing to consider all of our covenant unfaithfulness and how you must see it and how the God of Mount Sinai must burn against it. But it is an encouraging, hope-giving glorifying thing to look to the cross of Jesus Christ where we don't see him rub away our sins and pretend they didn't happen. We don't see him make up new laws so that we can get to God another way, but he gives his life as a satisfaction, a full and complete suffering as if he were being punished had he committed every single sexual act that we have committed. He was thus punished. And having completed that payment with his infinitely valuable life and blood. He was resurrected as a testament that, Father, you will, you wish, you love, you delight, you are filled with joy with the angels in heaven whenever somebody of an adulterous heart comes to Jesus to have their sins forgiven. Father God, please justify and save and cleanse and atone uh, against the sins of those who are still guilty now today. Apply the blood of Jesus Christ by your spirit. Give them faith to believe and to trust that you have saved them. Father God, we ask that those who know you, that you would keep us in the good, straight path of your commandments. That we would not veer to the right or to the left, but, but have a legacy mindset, that we, we see our grandchildren and great-grandchildren in our mind's eye at the end of our life, that we want to have a family covered with love and not violence. Father God, I, I pray for those who, who are in the actual consequences of this kind of sin, either as victims of an adulterous spouse 
or for those who have themselves been adulterous and are working through the consequences. Please assure them of your grace in Christ. Please assure them of the wisdom of your law. And please assure them that no matter the consequences, you will be with them to help them and that they need not be afraid of confession. Father God, we pray all of these things in the name of our glorious, covenant-keeping husband who loves us and will get us home, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.